Welcome to the Mike on Much Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Veerman. We're here with our friend and trusted producer, Max Kerman. We also have our pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham. And listeners, we have a great guest today, and we're going to switch up our format a bit. We're actually going to jump right to our conversation because we have Matthew Wildcat, who is a member of the Ermanskin Cree Nation. He's an assistant professor in political science and native studies at the University of Alberta. We have some mutual friends, and uh, we wanted to have him on because in light of everything that has been going on in this country and what you've read in the news, we thought it would be great to, to have a conversation with him. And Maxi, uh, we're changing up the format. You, you're just like, you know what? Let's not catch up. Let's just jump right to our conversation. Yeah, well, we can get to silly stuff afterward, but I think this is a really important conversation to be having, and I want our listeners to, to hear it right up front. Uh, yeah, and, and Matthew is uh, super generous with his time. He His uh, partner, Renee, is a Hamilton gal who we have lots of mutual friends with. Um, and so we I, we learned a lot, and it was, it was a really, I think, uh, fruitful conversation to have, especially right now. Do you want to get to Matthew? Let's do it. Matthew, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, off the top, I, th- I think we have a mutual friend. Uh, Max informs me you, you're you're friends with Dan Hamilton, who's like a dear friend to all of us. How do you know Dan? <laughs> I, I know Dan through uh, Renee Bosley. Oh, okay. Who I think a number or uh, Mike, I think you went to high school with her, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. My brother, my brother. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, yeah, no, me and Renee, uh, we've been together for a few years now. Uh, we met each other in grad school. Uh, quite a long time ago, about 2007 in Victoria. Uh, and then in uh, 2017, uh, started a romance with each other 10 years after we had met. And uh, yeah, no, we got married in the fall expecting a kid. Oh, congrats. That's now. amazing news. Yeah. Wow. So, That's yeah. very cool. So, yeah, yeah, well, it's exciting. Yeah, Dan reached out, um, y- you know, uh, with with everything that's happening in the news and the revelations the residential schools, he said, you should talk to Matthew because, um, you know, there's no better expert, uh, you know, to learn more <laughs> and, and discuss this stuff. So, so thank, thank you so much. But Ma- uh, Mike, you can take, take a, pro- take a proper intro here. Matthew, you're a member of the, uh, Ermanskin Cree Nation. Am I saying that correctly? I always want to make sure. Yeah, you are that. actually. Right. That's most people, um, say, or mind skin or something of that nature, <laughs> but yeah, you got it right. Um, yeah. uh, and you grew up on the Ermanskin uh, Reserve. Uh, you're an assistant yeah. professor in political science and native studies at the University of Alberta. Um, right. yeah. and, and I guess just to start, we sort of wanted to know sort of your path, a little bit about maybe your family history and what led you to political science and native studies in the first place. Yeah, so, um, you know, when I, when I was in high school, um, my strengths were in the maths and sciences. And, and so that's actually, I, I went to university thinking I was, um, going to be an engineer, but really, you know, I think always since I was, since I can remember, like, you know, since I became like a political being that, um, I always wanted to help, you know, the community that I grew up in, not Ermanskin itself, but Ermanskin is also part of a larger community, Musquachis. Which is uh, there's four first first nations or four Cree nations uh, that all have contiguous reserves with each other, and you know that was always kind of like at the at the heart of my my motivations and my passions, and I you know this I think was largely inspired by just like sitting in living rooms and like hearing people discuss politics in kitchens and you know just like constant there was kind of like a constant chatter of like you know what do we what can we do to make the community better right and so um what 
ended up changing my career path into political sciences, I actually went and worked a summer in Fort McMurray uh, at the Syncrude plant. And I had this moment where uh, I was looking at this map and it was where all the oil sands had been, all the claims had been charted by the various uh, companies. And right dead center in the middle of this map was Fort Mackay First Nation and their uh, reserve up there. And it just, you know, knowing that for the most part, it, it's not this way always now, but for the most part, you're, you know, you're um, taking the topsoil off to get to the bitumen and, you know, mining it that way. So it's like this form of sh- strip mining. And uh, I, and I just, you know, at that time, it I realized the immensity of these sorts of processes and structures that we live in. And I was like, you know what, me being an engineer isn't going to change things in the way that I think it's going to. Uh, I should just go do what I want. And I switched into Native Studies that summer. Uh, and then that kind of set me on my my path to uh, becoming a political scientist eventually. Yeah, are there many um, programs in different universities across Canada that like have a focus on Indigenous studies? Uh, and by the way, I always thought the word like Native Studies was was not appropriate, <laughs> but it, but that's in the title of you, of your job description. So I, I so what would catch us up on that as well? Yeah, you know, I think uh, if they had a redo, they would probably change it to the the faculty of indigenous studies but um you know this the the term came about in the 80s uh and back then you know native american was a fairly common term as well so i think lethbridge at the time had the first kind of indigenous studies program and i think they would even call it the uh, native american studies program potentially at in university of lethbridge and so you know it's just like an, an old term and partially because the faculty is so old it's been around for for quite a while so you know that that's um what explains that um sorry what was the, what was the first part of your uh, question oh I, I was wondering like how many other universities across canada like have a department uh for indigenous studies it's very very common now in mm-hmm. fact i would be surprised if um at least in western canada i would be shocked if there's not a, a single university that doesn't have like an established Indigenous studies department of some kind, a program of some kind. In Ontario, I'd say probably more than half. And then as you go out east, it, it becomes uh, less so. But even then, I, w- I would say probably a solid half of universities are going to have something really dedicated. But it, you know, it's not just Indigenous studies programs or departments that have come about. Now you see law schools turn to this. So like uh, McGill, Dalhousie, I'll have now like um, core indigenous content within their, uh, programming for, for first year law students, uh, in Western Canada, that's all again, ubiquitous. And, uh, and so it's, you know, there's a lot, um, out there, uh, that exists, you know, at the same time, I think what you saw is after the truth and reconciliation came out in 2015, that universities also, there was kind of like a mad dash or like a mad scramble to say, okay, we do have some Indigenous content and programming, but we're not doing it at a particularly large scale and maybe not always uh, resourcing it very well. And there was a bunch of uh, money and time and effort devoted to it. And and that's actually, uh, that's still kind of ongoing today just because universities are such big ships to turn it around. All of those efforts started then are are kind of still around in, in some sort of way. So, you know, it is fairly common, but it, you know, it's something where as a, I guess as a country, our, our post-secondary system is, 
there's a lot of work to be done still. What's the what's the makeup of these departments typically? Is it mostly Métis or Indigenous people, or is there is there like a a good degree of just white or other other people involved in the program? They're not exclusively Indigenous. These uh, Indigenous studies programs, and so part of what's happened as universities have uh, attempted to make inroads around Indigenous research is that um, if you're an Indigenous faculty member, you're you know you're quite in demand in this. Um, country, uh, so much so that there's more jobs than available Indigenous peoples with PhDs or, you know, the ca- capability to teach in faculty positions. And, you know, I guess in some ways, a lot of it actually is there, you know, the requirement of having a PhD these days, um, has led to some people being excluded from universities. This is a, a, it's something that, um, you know, very well known Anishinaabe scholar Leanne Simpson talks about in one of her papers that, you know, back in the day, you would have elders who are on faculty teaching courses. And I was uh, uh, telling this story about um, when I was an undergrad, there's this contemporary Native art course taught by Jane Ash Potters, who's this famous Native artist who lives in Edmonton. And, you know, she was in the classroom uh, breaking us down, the, you know, the history of contemporary uh, Native art in Canada. And, you know, so it, it's been around for a long time, but the, you know, the requirement that universities have now put on that people need to have a, a PhD or close to it uh, in order to get hired um, and the great demand for uh, people who are competent in talking about Indigenous studies, but also histories of colonialism um, means that non-Indigenous peoples are, are needed to staff these departments uh, in, in some capacities. I'll take the next one. We, we all, by the way, uh, Matthew, we all have like a bunch of questions and thoughts. So I'll, I'll do the next one and then we'll, we'll pass sure, the mic. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the Truth and uh, Reconciliation uh, Commission back in 2015. Just for like a, a layman explanation of that, can, can you walk us through how that came about and what the intentions were for it? And maybe what what's what you think has been successful in, in terms of what we've learned from that or what maybe missed the mark? Can you, yeah, I think for a lot of our listeners, even those who are sort of politically minded, it's still, uh, I think there's people aren't completely familiar with exactly what, what the purpose of that document was. Yeah, so, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came out of a class action uh, lawsuit. And so, you know, they often call themselves survivors uh, of residential schools, you know, people who had attended residential schools throughout the late 80s and early 90s started to launch lawsuits against churches and the federal government um, to the point where there was so many people <laughs> who had lawsuits that, you know, the court said, OK, you, you need to pull these together and, and pull together a, a, a clash action lawsuit. And, you know, before that time, there, I think in some ways, the history of residential schools in this country had been, you know, were forgotten almost in, in a way, which is wild because they're, they were still ongoing at that time, right? Like the last residential schools didn't close until 1996. But, you know, the, the peak of them had, had taken place. And what was required was a lot of people, I think, in the arts. Um, so I had an uncle who put on a play about residential schools, I think, in the, the early 90s. Uh, and, you know, people talked about it as like, you know, this is the first time I've ever seen this represented in, you know, in, in a play or we've been able to talk about it in, in public. And Phil Fontaine had this kind of very famous uh, moment on TV where he said that he had been abused, at res- like not only that he'd gone to residential schools, but he'd been abused there. Right. And so, 
this created all this momentum and this class action lawsuit resulted in a, you know, a, a quite a significant s- settlement. It was a multi-billion dollar settlement. And one of the components of that, the settlement was that uh, the survivors of residential schools with the money they received through that lawsuit, rather than just like taking it all and divvying it up individually, said, we want to put some of that towards doing a truth and reconciliation commission. And that, you know, at the time this was kind of, it, you know, it's an international model, right? And most famously, done uh, in South Africa after apartheid, uh, they did a truth and reconciliation commission uh, in order to <laughs> try to, to create a new society, right? To, to move past all the transgressions that had happened within apartheid. And so, you know, this model was, was uh, used by survivors to create this truth and reconciliation commission. It had three commissioners who traveled around the country and people could give testimony in uh, multiple ways. So you could give public testimony. So I attended two of the commission's hearings, one in Vancouver and then one in Muscogee is where I'm from. And then uh, you could, if you didn't want to do it in public, you could also do it in private. And, and so they collected all of this uh, evidence. And, you know, in, in many ways at the time, a lot of non-Indigenous Canadians decided to attend these events. And I think we're very moved and impacted by it. And, you know, I almost wonder if in some ways, you know, the kind of the shock and the outrage that's happened around uh, finding these mass graves in uh, Kamloops and now in uh, Kawasas First Nation, if if the truth and reconciliation was necessary to kind of like give people the like the mental capacity to understand that as a as an atrocity. Right. Like I like I almost wonder if this had, you know, if this news had come about. Previously, it would have been hard for people to even wrap their their heads around it. Like I know it seems obvious why it's so awful and and shocking, but it, to some extent, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission it had this like gravitational pull and force on on people's consciousness in Canada, whether it's in a big way or a small way. But it, it you know it, it really it it made it clear that this was a thing that happened and and that we we needed to deal with it in in some kind of capacity, right? And, and so the commission, when it released its final reports, I actually know many of the commissioners well, not Marie Sinclair, but uh, Wilton Littlechild uh, was my next door neighbor growing up, surprisingly, like lived just down the road. My, his daughter was my first friend. Uh, Marie Wilson, she, uh, I'm quite good friends with her daughter, uh, Kalakakwi. And, you know, it, it was a very, very hard couple of years, I, I think, for them listening to everyone's testimony but what they did really well and really strategically was when they released that calls for action i think there's 94 they wrote it in such a way where that if any individual person reads it they feel as if it's something that they could take up and that they have to do something about right you you know like i can respond to this myself individually and not only myself but my participation in whatever institutions uh in canadian life that i find myself participating in and and so you know, again, I think all of these things kind of, I don't want to downplay, you know, the, the horror of um, finding these mass graves, but I think the TRC really helped people to understand that, yeah, this is a real thing that, that happened and that took place. I was uh, reading an interview, actually, you did recently or somewhat recently, and uh, they were asking you about a blog post you did where it was talking about the end of trauma-based narratives of rec- reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And obviously every podcast and everything I've been reading lately, mm-hmm. it, that's all they've been talking about. 
And I was wondering, what would you rather be hearing right now on podcasts such as this and other outlets? You know, so it, in, in some respects, it's, it, it is a time of reflection, right? And, and um, you know, that little, that critique I had of like, you know, they're, they're, we're too trauma-centric was in part um, because I'd gone, uh, I'd been asked to participate at uh, University of Alberta. There's this uh, leadership college, the Lougheed Leadership College, and I'd asked been to do it a day on Indigenous peoples. And rather than focus on Indigenous uh, leadership, you know, values, practices, we focused on, they, they did a blanket exercise, which is this uh, exercise, which is kind of like a, a, a visual, not only visual, but a, um, it's a representation of colonization where everyone gets together and stands on blankets and you take blankets away slowly to represent Indigenous peoples losing their lands. And it, you know, it's a very impactful exercise but in in my head i'm like this is bullshit you know like we should be if we're if this is a leadership programming course people can learn about colonization elsewhere especially at u of a there's like dozens of courses on colonization um we should be talking about leadership and in a lot of ways that's where that you know at that moment that's where it was coming out of and and so i you know to some extent really really what i want to get out or you know, I, I guess the idea, and it's not my idea. There's, you know, Eve talk, talks about this. There's lots of other people who talk about, you know, not having trauma centered research narratives. You have to talk about indigenous strength and resilience. And I think in, in some ways, what I was thinking about is let's also talk about indigenous excellence, right? And, and indigenous strengths as well. And, and so, you know, I, I guess it's not that we can ignore trauma and, and we can ignore you know, it's not just the past, right? It, it's like, you know, Indigenous peoples live with very high levels of trauma currently every day, right? And, you know, we, ha- we have to grapple with those things. But, you know, I, I think part of it is that if we're going to have a, a partnership of, of some kind in this country, that we need to think about how Indigenous peoples are, you know, not only like have excellence in all these areas, but, uh, but also like politically, like how do Indigenous peoples come to govern things in more substantive ways. Mm. Right. And so that, I think that's the, you know, where I would hope we also make space and room for that as well. I love that, Maddie. You know, it's like, because of course it's, there's a painful history there, but I would love to, but it's also such a vibrant culture and, mm-hmm. and, and it's nuanced and there's, there's so much to know and learn from it. And you're right. I think oftentimes the only things we read in the news, you know, but the history of indigenous people are just the sad, tragic things that have happened. And, and I would, and as I would like to learn more about everything else as, as well and all the, all the things we can learn from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting, like speaking of sort of like this moment in time and going forward and sort of, you know, uh, reflecting on the past, also sort of acknowledging the present and then figuring out next steps. It feels like we're in this moment. Maybe it's just the age we're in the age of accountability when it comes to sort of everything uh, it would seem currently in society. Um, but obviously with the the sort of the revelations about sort of the uh, the discoveries at the residential schools and the way that the greater population is sort of it seems talking about it in a way that I can't remember in my lifetime and uh, it feels significant and there's obviously momentum right now and people are very moved and, and people that maybe before weren't paying attention are paying attention. Does mm-hmm. this feel different to you uh, from sort of like a larger sort of like societal standpoint where you're like, wow, like Canadians and a larger mass maybe are paying attention more and then how do you keep that momentum? Does this feel different this time? I guess is what I'm boiling <laughs> it down to. It definitely felt different in some ways because I had a bunch of... Uh 
people like non-indigenous people texting me being like <laughs> guilty about you i'm like oh this is different <laughs> you know um like to to be perfectly honest when i saw the news i almost like i i don't even think i opened the article par- partially because sometimes i'm like you know i'll come back i'll circle back around on that i i don't want to read that right now but then also like, I honestly didn't think it was going to be such a big deal uh, in a lot of ways. And and a lot of it is because, you know, if you were familiar with the TRC as it was being done, there they said there was, they estimated four to 6,000 children died at these institutions, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that like this is to be expected in some ways, right? And even I have a, a friend, uh, Mandy McDonald, was saying she knows people from Kamloops. You know, she had been told that, there was unmarked graves there, you know, years ago, right? And she, so her, she said, when I saw the news, I was like, oh, that's nice to confirm that kind of thing, right? And, and so, like I said, you know, this is the, how I, if it didn't come across clearly earlier, because I'm just kind of working through this point, but, you know, I really think that the TRC, all the work done in the TRC helped to kind of give people, you know, the mental framework to comprehend this as a tragedy, mm-hmm. right? And and so I I don't see this as like a big tangent from where we've been before. This is all kind of stuff that builds on each other. You know, I I'm not entirely sure why it's caused such a, a humongous thing, but I you know obviously I I'm I'm sure it's because children are involved, right? And and there's really like a I think a you know very just that 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 is a real difficult reality that of you know these that in Kamloops at least that, that most of these graves are of children. So, but yeah, yeah, like I I'm, I'm I was listening to an interview with uh, Rosemary Barton and uh, Marie Sinclair on Rosemary Barton's show, and and she went she said I went and reread the chapter on you know missing uh, children, and uh, you know obviously this shouldn't be a shock to anyone, yeah, right, and mm-hmm. and so. So yeah, I guess it does. It's definitely different in some sort of way, but but in in my mind, I see it as just kind of like part of the, you know, part of the ongoing, not just the reckoning. I think on, on the part of non-indigenous peoples, but also part of the ongoing like resistance and activism that indigenous peoples have had to undertake in order to push these things to the forefront. I was researching a few months ago for another interview, and I I came across some information that indigenous people or or indigenous children, rather, they're less than 10 percent of the population in Canada, but 50 percent of the foster care system is indigenous peoples, indigenous children. Mm -hmm. So how do you think we can break the cycle to get indigenous children to grow up with their families and be part of their culture? You know, there it's a. And uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's a it's a really tough question, and especially because, like in some provinces like Manitoba, it's even more stark that disparity, right? And um, so there's a lot of activities underway right now, which I think are are going to be helpful. So, you know, one we have things like you know in, in the past, there's probably been people child welfare agencies have been too quick to move to apprehension. Uh, rather than explore other options. In particular, how do you support parents, right? And how do you support families? There also in the past has been very difficult for, um, say, immediate family members, so like aunts and uncles, grandparents, to receive 
care of the child. Like they, they would become the caregivers. They should be next in line before the child is brought out of the home and adopted to out of their own culture. Absolutely. Right. So that, so in the past that has been, it's been very difficult. So, you know, part of this is just legally like transferring the guardian, guardianship of a child. I think it, it just, it really wasn't set up to take account of it in indigenous people's like family networks and experiences. And, and, you know, that's slowly moving. You also have in the, in the past, there was a really strong, I think I, I view it as being very moralistic that say you have an aunt or maybe even like someone who's not directly related, like a cousin or something who is a, a capable caregiver or a capable guardian, but financially couldn't take on another child, but child welfare agencies would say, well, we can't give money to you because that should be your obligation to take care of this child. So we're not going to pay you in the same way that we would pay a foster parent. Right. And so, you know, that again, that hurdle has been largely overcome. And then the last big one, of course, is that, you know, um, the way Canadian Federation is divided up, provinces have control of, of child welfare and provinces haven't always done a great job of accommodating Indigenous peoples and working with Indigenous peoples. Right. And so not only do you have provinces who are much more willing to engage with First Nation governments and leaders and community groups than previously, but probably just as importantly, you have uh, First Nations themselves taking jurisdiction over child welfare. And, and uh, a lot of there's a huge amount of work going uh, around across the country right now because of I think it's uh, Bill C-91, which is a, a child like an Indigenous child welfare law that was uh, passed by the federal government, which allows First Nations to take jurisdiction over child welfare. And then you have people like Cindy Blackstock, who have really like brought a lot of attention to this. Uh, and then, you know, someone at uh, University of Alberta, Hadley Friedland, who talks about, I think, okay, how do Indigenous people set up jurisdictions, right? How do Indigenous people set up laws? And, you know, Sarah Morales at UVic and all these other people across the country who are doing this really hard work of like, how do you build institutions? And, and institution building is, it's just incredibly tough and, and slow work. So these things are all happening, but I, I also view it as being incredibly complicated because at, you know, at the end of the day, the reason why people have to get apprehended from their parents is because their, their parents are not well, right? They're, they're suffering in, in lots of ways. And a lot of the time, the reason why they're suffering is because of, intergenerational trauma they're suffering because of like colonial injustices that still exist in their life and those things are really really difficult to deal with uh and and there's no easy way out of that it that is just it's the history of this country that you know the history of colonialism has meant that we have this kind of deep pain that you know exists in indigenous communities and and that's, it just, you can't solve that overnight. And, and so that's just something we have to, it's going to be a, a long-term project. Hey, Matthew, you know, you know, the, the entire country is, is grieving over something that, that I think the indigenous community knew all along. And I think the rest of us are, are really starting to understand mm-hmm. just how, you know, deeply wounded that community is. Um, you know, I was I was thinking though about you know something you said earlier about like what are what are ways we can you know highlight you know just how, you know how special the culture is how we can you know show more examples of indigenous excellence and leadership and you know you you were leading a course I'm reading here on EdmontonHeritage.ca about land acknowledgments mm. and 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 rethinking them 
uh, you know, when it, when it comes to, you know, public settings and, and different events, uh, what, what are like uh, positive steps? You know, I'm in a band. I do lots of public things. I'm, <laughs> I'm in Victoria right now with uh, Canada basketball. Um, you know, and I'm covering this basketball tournament. I like I'm out and about. We're we're yeah. all you know we're all doing stuff. Uh, and of course, there's like you know right now. I the thing I see often on social media is like you know there's 24 hour crisis hotlines for any Indigenous person who needs to talk, and that's obviously mm-hmm. incredibly important. And then there's but what what are other things that you'd like to see more of a part of Canadian culture? You know, it it's a long and and slow road. I view a lot of this as being very, very difficult for people to work through because, you know, as an individual, you, you come to conceive of yourself in certain ways, right? Like your identity, right? Like, and, and you build up your identity and most people, they of huge parts of their identity. They want to build up as being a fairly positive thing. Right. And, and so in a lot of ways, you know, being a Canadian was a, is, you know, has been a, a super positive aspect of people's identity. Like it's something that people are, proud of and not only that but you associate being canadian with certain values right like democracy free speech you know like justice like you know all all of these these kind of things and i i think one of the reasons why these you know when we hear news like this why it's so difficult to grapple with is because it's not just that undermining your understanding of what canada is it's undermining your understanding of self right like you come to think of you're like well, if I've been so proud of being a Canadian all these years, like, am, am I a bad person, you know? And, and it's a lot to kind of grapple with and to, and to think through and to process. And so to some extent, I, you know, I think people need to really be able to process Canada in a, a, a different way to some extent. And, you know, and, and so I have this um, other article, I, I think it might've been even the article that you were reading Shane, or, you know, it's like a, a blog post and, you know, in it, I say, we're going to have to create a shared future, right? We have no choice there. You know, we exist here together. And as much as uh, indigenous peoples who might uh, make a claim, like, you know, people should just leave. I, you know, I think you could justify that at like a legal moral level. Like I, you know, it's possible, but it's not feasible, right? It's not, it's not going to happen. And, and so, you know, creating the shared future is, is really difficult. And I, I think in some ways it's going to require people to take on new and, and different identities and potentially that don't revolve around Canada. Like that's the, you know, the claim that I make in the blog post is like, maybe we shouldn't think about this in terms of how do we reform Canada? We might have to think about this in, in just in terms of like how people come to conceptualize their identities and how people come to conceptualize their society in just a kind of like a, a different way. And so I think that's really hard and, and difficult work because it, you know, not only does it involve the self, but, but, you know, these identities don't exist in isolation. They exist because a bunch of people, like millions of people buy into them. Right. So like in, in a political theory, we would call it intersubjective knowledge, right? This is knowledge that we regenerate together inter, you know, through our subjectivities combined and, and collectively. And so, you know, that's real tricky stuff to do, right? Not only building up yourself in a different way, but doing it in, in concert with millions of other people, it's real hard. And so there's no real easy, easy pathway for how we move that dial and, and change it and, and move it over. You know, but at some extent, I think Indigenous peoples all along have, you know, articulated these different visions of shared futures. So like, you know, out east, you have the Gaswenta, like the, the two Rwandan, like, you know, two ships traveling side by side. Uh, like on the prairies, we have like all this discussion around treaty, like, 
you know, we're all treaty people, we're signatories to this like kind of sacred compact, uh, doing things together. And, and so, you know, the way I've described it is that like right now we exist in a country that's colonial, right? And in particular, like it's a settler colonial country, like, you know, people came from elsewhere. What makes someone a settler instead of an immigrant is that when you come from elsewhere, you bring your own laws with you rather than joining the laws of another land, right? And, and so that's why we live in a settler colonial country because, you know, primarily people from Britain brought, you know, those laws with them, established them here. And now those are the laws that we use to govern this country rather than people joining indigenous societies and using indigenous laws to govern the country. And, and so the, the big question is how do we, you know, end becoming a settler colonial country? And that's really, really difficult work because it means that indigenous laws and indigenous governance has to become, you know, fulsome and substantive in, in these ways, which is probably quite scary to a lot of people. And, and I don't have any easy pathways other than to say that I, you know, I think a lot of people are doing a lot of great work, indigenous and non-indigenous. That being said, part of what is, is frankly difficult um, to conceive of is that it, it might be impossible, right? It's because Canada doesn't exist in a vacuum. It, you know, it, it participates in a larger world around forces of, you know, capitalism, the way in which uh, nation states and, you know, the, like the world order conceives of how like economies and political authority, all of those things work. And so we're tethered to that larger world order in, in some sort of ways. And, you know, having seeing these dramatic transformations is just really difficult. You know, I, I don't want to let go of this kind of like this, this future where colonialism doesn't exist. But at the same point, what I really want to focus on is that there are people doing really great work right now. And I think if you, if you work on it and you build up your own capacity to, to think through, you know, how do I be a good treaty partner? How do I be a good, you know, uh, like relative, I guess you might say to indigenous peoples, how do we create a shared future together in this country? I think it's possible. Like, I, I think we can make inroads for sure. Well, I think that's, uh, that's a great note to sort of to, to, to leave on sort of the thought of a shared future and, and the things that we can do to sort of get there. Um, man, thank you so much, uh, Matthew, for being here. Um, Maxi, Shane, do you guys have any more questions for Matthew before, uh, before we, we let Just him go? Just one more. <laughs> I, I wanted to know, how do you think the, the land recognition speeches go over? Like, is it, are they welcomed in the indigenous community or is it like someone stealing your house and then being like, sorry, Sorry, we did that. That's right. Yeah, the um, the analogy that um, I've heard people use is, you know, you can't apologize if you've stolen someone's bike. You can't apologize to them unless you give the bike back. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I'll, let me put it this way: it, you know, in Alberta, you know, we're still fairly, you know, we're a conservative province, right? And and so. It's not, it's stark when someone refuses to do land acknowledgement. And so that's refusing to do a land acknowledgement is still worse than doing a, a land acknowledgement, even if it's, you know, kind of hollow or, or vacuous. You know, they were, they were really important. They were something that could scale really easily and quickly. Right. And, and so the, you know, the, the scholarship on land acknowledgements has suggested that part of it is that coming out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, this is something that could just, you could really, a lot of people could do very, Quickly, but then of course, what is, was once kind of very, uh, important and interrupted spaces, like made people think in a different way now feels 
very vacuous and and hollow because we we hear them all the time and and like you said that like what are we to make of these things when we don't actually want to uphold treaty relationships right and so the the workshop that i offer you know i use this uh, method out of the united states called public narrative uh developed by marshall gantz and you know it's practiced by many many people down there and what i do with the that narrative is I have a workshop where I ask people to kind of like plumb the depths of their uh, consciousness or their experience. And, and it's about, you know, when did you realize colonialism was a thing, right? Like when, like, what was that moment for you? And, and what I suggest and I offer to people is that like, you know, if you can, those, those stories of coming to understand our country as being a, a colonial country or coming to understand that, you know, something is kind of deeply wrong uh, and the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in this country, that you should tell those stories along with your land acknowledgement. And that that's what's going to make land acknowledgements meaningful, is not just the fact that we're sharing these stories of how we've come into our, our understanding of this situation, but that we can relate to each other on like a, you know, an intellectual, emotional level. And, and I think it really, in, in a lot of ways, to be motivated to do stuff it's not just like understanding it at like a rational level. It's like we have to be moved in our soul in some sort of way, right? Like it, it comes down to our our emotions and our our core sense of of self. And and this is, I think, to me, involves sharing these kind of personal moments of how we came to under understand that things are really screwed up. And for people who want to sign up for your workshop, how would they do that? I just, you know, organizations contact me and I, I just offer it. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I, I do it a couple times a year. I'm, I'm happy to do it. You know, I, I think there might be an online video, um, uh, Canada Trust, uh, recorded me giving a, a lecture about it. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I love giving the workshop because it's, um, you know, they're, they're really like high energy events in this kind of like deeply emotional way. And so, uh, so it's kind of one of my favorite things to do because people leave like, angry, but also really jazzed that they can do something about, uh, you know, about, about indigenous self-determination. Actually, Matthew, I have one more question. Um, yeah. I, this has kind of come up a lot in the last couple of years when you see these various social movements uh, really, you know, take hold of the culture in, I think, a positive way. Um, you know, there, there's this big issue, not issue, there's, there's a conversation happening about, you know, renaming things, you know, whether it's Ryerson University or Dundas Street, Dundas the city. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and I am always a little reticent when I hear uh, the arguments being made by rich liberals who are advocating on behalf of any, any group. Uh, and, and that always, and I kind of want to be like, can you shut up for a second? Like, I'd like to know what the people <laughs> that are living the experience would like, and then we can go from there. Cause you see this in a lot of different, uh, you know, struggles happen. So I, I get, and I know there isn't probably a consensus opinion in the indigenous community, but you know, cause there's a lot of opinions in any community, but, um, Broadly speaking, like, do you feel that the advocates are being helpful? Are they are, are they frustrating on any level? And and what do you make of the of the renaming uh, conversation? You know, the renaming is so. There's a, a group of indigenous conservatives, I'll call them, and then like indigenous conservatives are different conservatives to me than than other people, right? Because they, um, I feel like they're usually more sincere about, you know, they're about questions of like self reliance and like these are kind of in, in some ways actually like very kind of traditional traits because like you know when you were 
living in the bush, you have to be pretty self-reliant, right? You know, like, and so, yeah, and they say, let's not worry about this naming because it's, it doesn't change anything, right? It's not substantive. Uh, we need to actually like take action. And I, I have a, a bit of sympathy for that, but not entirely because this, it is a form of action because it not in necessarily in super material ways, but like symbolically, like we need somewhere to, to put our energies into. Right. And, and so sometimes I think with the naming, we, we don't entirely know what to do. And, and so it's like, but this is something that is really easy, low hanging fruit. Like we should just not have buildings named and like universities named after people who have these like, very dark histories. And, you know, like I, I hear the, you know, no one should be judged by the worst thing that they've done. But at the same point, like when the worst thing you've done is like orchestrate residential schools, like it, it's hard not to be judged by that, you know, right. And so I, you know, I'm all for the name, uh, the renaming. I, I have a good story which illustrates this. And so this is, uh, at Uvic Law School, there's this judge, uh, Judge Begbie. He was a judge in the colony of British Columbia, I think in the 1870s, maybe 1860s. So at that time, you know, British Columbia as a colony is like, is trying to expand, you know, uh, take control of more land. And they have this war with Silkotin people are like, it, that sometimes gets egg, uh, anglicized to Chilcotin, uh, in interior BC. And so, you know, this is like a war, right? Like it, it's two separate political entities having a war over land. You know, the British, uh, win. Uh, and then when it's all over, they invite people to, I think it was, uh, maybe New Westminster, or, you know, somewhere in the lower mainland. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, let's come here. We'll, we'll make a peace treaty. Like, we'll, we'll figure this thing out now that the war is over. But it was like total Braveheart style. Like, it was like a trick. They arrested everyone, tried them and, and hung, I think, five Silkotine chiefs at this time. Like, this is like a, a humongous, for circulating people like a like this defines their consciousness of how they think of Canada as like this Braveheart style hanging of all their leadership uh, after this war. And so uh, a bust of this judge hung in the UVic law school. And I, I think there was like a wing named after him or something. And so this big debate happened and someone at the, the um, this debate was like, we need to keep this statue around because we need to be reminded of, you know, the sins of our past. We need to be reminded of all the bad things we've done so we don't um, repeat them. Uh, and uh, my friend, Russ Ross, who's so routine, stood up uh, and I, I wasn't there, but this is what was told to me is he stood up and said, I don't need this statue to remind me of colonialism. I'm reminded of colonialism everywhere I go. You know, <laughs> Just because you haven't yeah. remembered history in these ways, it doesn't mean I haven't. Uh, and so, you know, if, if this is what uh, non-Indigenous peoples need to do in order to remember history differently, then yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. Anyways, uh, some people snuck into the law school and I stole that statue and uh, they didn't have to have that conversation anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, thank Matthew. you so much, uh, Matthew, for your time. Uh, it was a great conversation. And honestly, uh, congrats again on your impending little one. Uh, yeah, pretty yeah. exciting. When, when, you, when you do? Uh, Renee is due July 16th. So oh, coming right yeah, up. Wow. If you come, come any anytime amazing yeah yeah well say yeah. hello to renee so, from uh, shane and congratulations yeah, yeah, real. Well, yeah absolutely absolutely i will okay thanks so much man. okay thanks again okay thanks guys
thank you so much uh, to Matthew Wildcat. That was a great conversation. Um, it's always fascinating to listen to people sort of just who know what they're talking about talk and it's nice to just sit back and listen uh, uh and hear what they have to say yeah he really um he reminds me of our friend matt savelli uh who's also a professor at mcmaster but they have the same speaking voice and the same kind of wisdom and i feel very comforted around just like listening to to matthew wildcat speak was the same way i feel about when i listen to savelli speak i'm just like it's so soothing it's really nice it was it was v- nice just to hear him Yeah, it's very, uh, I mean, this seems obvious, but like a prof- professorial vibe, mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah. seems appropriate since that is both of their professions. Since they're both professors, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, how are you guys doing? Um, what, uh, I'm in Victoria, guys. Did you know You that? are, you are. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's, you know, I got to say it is a little weird. We, we don't know. I feel like the energy is, mm-hmm. is changed. I feel like I'm, we're going to have to shift with this energy because it's like we literally just came off this sort of long conversation, uh, this in-depth conversation. Mm-hmm. And now we're sort of just jumping back into like, Hey, Max, you're in a hotel room, uh, but tell us about it. That's the way it's going to go. It's Yeah, I uh, came out to the West Coast a few days ago. Uh, Team Canada Basketball uh, uh, is hosting me. I'm going to get to go to a live sporting event uh, in a few hours, the first live sporting event in ages that I've attended. And I'm doing some social media stuff for them. Our Kells um, have some performance footage that we're going to be rolling out as part of this Olympic qualifying basketball tournament that Team Canada is trying to get a spot in the Olympics for. And uh, we were supposed to play here last year uh, uh, around Canada Day. Obviously, that got canceled, postponed. And so we're, we're doing this in lieu of that. But um, it's been fun. I got to say, um, in, in British Columbia, you can go inside to bars. So we were hanging out inside at restaurants. You know, there's six of us at a table. It kind of felt like the good old days. And uh, last night... We went to a bar. It's kind of an institution in Victoria. It's called Big Bad John's. It's a little hole in the wall. It's attached to, uh, I think, the Strathcona Hotel in downtown Victoria. And it's one of these bars where there's like, um, it's a real like kind of towny bar. And there is a um, a bin of peanuts, a big like bulk barn size <laughs> bin of peanuts next to the bar. You just go and you shovel all the peanuts you want into your own little bucket you bring it back to the table and then you eat the peanuts and you just throw them on the ground. And, and that's the bar. And there's like bras and money and cards and stuff all over the walls. It, it, it's, it's really something. The, the it peanut, was just like, the, yeah, that I feel like I've been to a lot of peanut bars. bars. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that gimmick is a very common thing. Yeah. It's, it's not, I don't know if it's very common. It's somewhat common, it's but common. the fact it felt like the most anti. <laughs> Uh, are you th- the, are you going to adopt it for odds, Max? Maybe I think it's him? cool, but I just felt like you know you've been. We basically went from not being able to see anybody legally to, to bobbing peanut, for peanuts with other to bobbing people. for peanuts. It was awesome. It was <laughs> the peanuts are in their shell though, right? Yeah, yeah, they were in the shell. They were, okay, they were, they were in the mm-hmm. shell. Uh, and then I got home, uh, and I was, hold on a second though. I, you're, yeah. you're skipping over stuff. You're you're you're, you're in this bar. Uh, mm. We all have social media. It, it, yes. it looked like you were you were on the high seas with the nuts with lights. Great yes. friend of the pod, manager Ash. You guys are all out there just living your best life. Uh, tell us more about that. Did it, do you feel alive again? Did it feel extra better because it's been a year and a half? Like, yeah. like, like did you cry tears of joy? <laughs> did not cry tears of joy. Manager Ash though did when she saw her best friend lights at the airport. Oh, that's lights amazing. Picked her up. That was that was very sweet. Made a TikTok out of that. No big deal. Uh, we also. Uh, it was very fun because Vancouver is like very alive right now. And, you know, I want to know, do I still have it? 
walking around the streets. Max, our kills, Max, our kills. Still got it, guys. Wow. So that that felt really good. Wow. Uh, yeah, we were on a boat. Uh, I went, I went, I am not the kind of person to jump in the ocean. I jumped in the ocean. It was, it was pretty great. Um, and yeah, we've just been going up for brunch, going up for lots of coffee spots. It's just been, it's been fun. Like, um, I, I was, we shared an Airbnb with the nut and our friend Brent. And guys, I can't tell you how much I love traveling with guys. It is amazing. Uh, like just hanging out shirtless in a hotel room the, the morning after having gone out and just like what there's a lot of soccer on in the morning and just like, just kind of talking shit, laughing, singing shirts off. It's, there's nothing <laughs> like it. Honestly, I think it's my favorite place on earth when you're just with friends on a road trip and, oh, yeah. and, and you're like, and I haven't been like hung over or anything like that, but we, we've gone out, but you're kind of that like, and we're kind of on vacation. So there's not like, it's, there's not like a lot of pressure on. I find when I travel with the band, I have to be, I am on, on, on. Like I, I don't really drink when, when we're touring, uh, because I need to really be dialed in. But on this trip, it's just kind of been pretty casual. And it just makes me want to go on a road trip with you guys. Like we need, we, you don't know how good it feels. And it's different than like going to someone's backyard. It's like when you're in a, when you're in a hotel room, and your shirts are off and it's 10 a.m. and you just had a coffee and no one cares about anything. Oh, so good. It's, it's, really the, good. it's the being indoors with people. It's like once mm. you shed, like once you've decided I'm sharing an Airbnb with these guys and we're going to be indoors and we're going to go to bars. Once you sort of get over that initial, like if there's any sort of concern, then you're probably just in the pocket. It's like the old world, but something you haven't done for a year and a half. It's like abstaining from something you love and oh. then all of a sudden just getting it back. It, it yeah. sounds glorious. It, it was really good. You know, it's the kind of thing it's like, you know, yeah, we're singing. I, I got a great. <laughs> it's actually so. Brent the nut and I were staying in Airbnb, but it was so hot on uh, Sunday night in Vancouver, and we were out with lights and stuff. And uh, I was like, guys, our Airbnb in the West Coast, there's no air conditioning in most places because they usually don't need it because it's such a moderate temperature. But it, they have the hottest temperatures here in like 60 years or something like that. So the whole city. Ooh, Max Kerman it, rolls into town. It's the hottest day in years. Coincidence? That's right. So <laughs> Ash, though, is staying at a hotel. I was like, Ash, are you in a double room? She's like, yeah, yeah. I was like, can I just stay in your room? I don't want to <laughs> stay in the Airbnb. It's too hot. So you ditched Brent and Birch and so you I went did to the air conditioning. That's exactly what I did. So then... <laughs> Hold on a sec. I, I, I'm going to pull up this thing here because it's really special. I'm, I'll, I'll play. I think the uh, I, I the audio will be good. Uh, one second here. So I, I got a text. I got a video from Brent and uh, <laughs> Virgil. Oh, this is <laughs> at one thirty in the morning. They just wanted to send a video. Um, so here it is. Uh, their their shirts are off. And by the way, when the when camera starts rolling. Um, Brent is posing with his shirt off because he thinks it's a photo. So here we go. <laughs> All right. Hello, Max. Robert. Oh, we're shooting videos. Yeah, we're shooting videos. Max, miss you. We miss you, man. Just let you know, just a couple bros, gonna go to sleep and shit. Just took our pants off, take our shirts off. Just say we miss you. Wish you were here with us, talking shit, singing songs. Two boys here, bro. Good boys. Two boys. Fucking. It's it's amazing that he keeps that chin pose even in a video. Like he must have known you were going to show that to other people because 
And it's like, but, but also, like, how long had you been separated? Like, like they're an after, hour. That's like been, an hour. Like, I at the went, hotel I for an hour. To... <laughs> <laughs> like, I went to the hotel. They went to the Airbnb in an hour. They're sending me a video. It's your boys. We miss you talking shit. That's singing funny. songs. <laughs> I miss those shenanigans. Uh, so it's been great. It's, it's been, uh, it's been really nice. Uh, uh, so, so one of the you're in Vancouver though because you are doing some TikTok stuff for Team Canada. So the Canadian yeah. national team is playing. There's NBA players on the team: Andrew Wiggins, R.J. Barrett, Corey Joseph. Uh, some listeners may remember he played for the Raptors. And Nick Nurse is coaching the team. Your friend, mm. your close personal yeah. friend, Nick Nurse. Uh, and so you're out there. Uh, you, I know you've called some people for some TikTok ideas. You, you like to brainstorm. So, mm-hmm. and, and I know you talked to Shane and you called me to ask for some ideas. But when you called me, you're like, oh, yeah, like I'm leaving for Vancouver to, uh, tomorrow and uh, I need some ideas for TikTok. I'm actually doing some stuff for the, the team and I'm going to be going to the game. I almost sensed in your voice that you were apologetic. Like you were nervous to tell me the news <laughs> that you were going yeah. to Vancouver for free and getting paid to watch fucking NBA players play basketball in person, yeah. I, 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 which I appreciate. I'm like, this is a good friend. He's handling me with kid gloves because he knows. <laughs> <laughs> that I would I would do anything to be doing what you're doing right now, which is hanging around this basketball team, this Team Canada. Were you actually a little trepidatious to let me know that was what you're doing? Oh, absolutely. Because Mike, this this is a trip of a lifetime. You know, like, <laughs> honestly, especially for you, you love it. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted I wanted to be sensitive to my guys, but uh, yeah, I got I got back to the hotel room last night. Um, I'm happy for you though. Yeah. Anyway, that that's me. What do what do you, what you guys uh, What are you guys up to? Uh, I'm getting va- double vaxxed today. Hey, that's fun. Hey, congratulations. I am Great. double vaxxed. Uh, oh, so, good. Yeah. Good, 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 good. Guys, we might be able to do a pod in person. How, how, how sick did you get after the double vax? I honestly, I feel like I got away I, like with robbery. I'm like, start the car. Everybody I know, all of our buddies in the Champagne Boys, like were on their ass, like out, like mm-hmm. Dawson, mm-hmm. Felix, all of them were out of commission for 24 hours. I, I literally had, my arm wasn't even as sore as it was the first time. So it was like, I got a little oh, wow. bit of the arm soreness and I was just rolling, baby. Hopefully you get that experience, Shane. You guys, it was so hot in Vancouver. And now that um, I am double vaxxed, I hate wearing a mask so much. And I made a tweet about it. I was like, I'm going to go to, I'm going to start my own I'm now an anti-masker and an anti-lockdown person. <laughs> <laughs> I made a tweet about it being like, and I'm going to have my own march. And the march will be going to brunch inside. Shirtless. Uh, Shirtless. But you can only come if you're double vaxxed. Anyway, I made a tweet. The joke being that I'm now that. It was obviously a joke. But a lot of people were like, yo, I'm really surprised that that this is the approach you're taking here. I'm like, oh, God. I'm really surprised, Max, that you would be surprised that you'd get that kind of backlash. Yeah, of of course you'd get backlash. But the punchline was... You can like the march will be us going to brunch, which is yeah. such a hoity-toity. You think people understand thing. punchlines or comedy on the internet? <laughs> it's your first mistake, man. Honestly, I just deleted it. They're like, "Yo, that, I'm surprised." Not longer, no longer an Arkells fan. I'm like, uh-huh, "Okay, whoa, right, you lost mind. some fans." Never mind. Okay, never mind. Dang. Yeah, you um, can't do any sort of satire or jokes online. Yeah, apparently it's comedy 101. Yeah. All right. Uh, anyway, that's me. I've been gabbing away. What What do you guys been up to? Uh, well, Shane mentioned that the double vax. Shane, are you nervous about your double vax? Or are you feeling good? Uh, I'm worried about getting sick. Yeah. 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 You're gonna be fine. I'm doing the the combo deal. I'm getting Moderna, and I got Pfizer first. Not to brag. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. When you are double vaxed, 
are you are you guys going to loosen up? Do you think? Because you you have been probably like my, our most disciplined sort of friends, the tightest. Uh, you've kept your your family very tight knit. No one's really seen you in a year and a half. Obviously, uh, as we know, Alex has lupus, and so she's more at risk. Um, uh, do you think you guys will loosen up, or do you still sort of keep it tight because of the kids? I think we'll loosen up. Okay, so maybe some in person podcasts. In person, everything. Yeah, love it. That's great. Um, speaking of in person, uh, we talked in our last episode about the the draft lottery, uh, the NBA <laughs> yeah, draft lottery. I saw your reaction. <laughs> so I had a uh, had a little gathering in the backyard, and I was pretty excited. Like I said, like this was basically our playoffs for if you're a Raptors fan, which is slightly pathetic because you know you don't really want to be in a lottery, but once you're there, it's like you might as well have a good time. It's kind of my philosophy in life. It's like you know, make make you get lemons. Make lemonade. Like, did I want to be in the lottery? No. Max Shane, you're in my basketball groups. Was I bitching the whole way? Did Aaron Baines give me heartburn every time he tried to catch a pass <laughs> on a fucking pick and roll? Yes. But then once, you know, I realized we were going to be, we, it, it, this wasn't the year, I started to get excited about the lottery. So, this draft lottery show, which I want to talk about the way that the NBA does this because they're so fucking smart. I was excited to have this thing and I wanted to have people in the backyard. And I got the feeling that a lot of people were kind of like, you're having people over to the backyard to like watch the half hour draft lottery show, like where the Raptors could pick as low as 11th and, and are more likely to pick ninth than jump into the top four. And my brother, even who we know can be a bit of a scathing cynic, uh, posted some odds of us getting the first pick. I'm like, I know it's only 7%. So he's like, calm down. This is what he said to me the day of when I was getting excited for my party. So I have, I have people over. I got our good friend, Jimmy, my, my neighbor, Pat from the East coast popped over. We had Sean Dawson, Mike, Mike D from uh, Arkells popped by, uh, Felix. We had, it was a good crew back there. And the show, the way that they set it up is basically they go, you know, last to first. So the way it's normally slotted is the warriors were picking 14th and it goes 14th down. We couldn't go 14, 13, or 12, but there was like a minuscule chance we could be 11. So the minute this commissioner, deputy commissioner, starts opening the envelopes, he pulls out the logos of the teams. Mm. So you're watching the show, and if you're invested, it is very dramatic. And my heart hasn't beat that fast. Like, well, actually, I did do that weird 6K ride where I thought I might die. So my heart was beating fast <laughs> that time. But as far as like excitement in, in like, like something you're watching... I found myself like super like caught up. And so it's like the envelope comes out. We're not there at 11. Brilliant. Not there at 10. Nine and eight. I know there's a good chance we're going to get pushed down and someone else, you know, maybe jumps up. We're not there at nine. We're not there at eight. The moment of truth comes where we're either at seven or we've jumped into the top four. And when he pulled out the Golden State Warriors logo for number seven, I like, I lost my shit. Cause in that moment, Anything's possible. We could be picking number one. All I know is we jumped into the top four because we couldn't have had six or uh, six or five. And it was like the buzz in the backyard and like the guys, like even the people that didn't think it was going to happen or weren't super invested were like, whoa, like it actually created this amazing moment. Uh, obviously, if anybody follows, they know that we we ended up with the fourth pick overall in like a player that has four or a draft that has four amazing players. And my brother, the next day, all of a sudden, he was all good, and he was like, "Sorry for being a cynic. I'll never doubt you again." <laughs> He's like, "I'm so happy for you," and I'm like. The point is, it's like, did I did I make a party out of something that could have been super, you know, uh, uh, lame? Yes. But did it turn out amazing and with a little bit of luck and positive thinking? Did it turn into like, I'm so glad I had people back there to celebrate with instead of just sitting on my couch and watching this, what would normally be a mundane experience? Did either of you guys watch the draft lottery show? I did not, but I did see Snapchats of you freaking out, which was just as good for me. <laughs> just like you like jumping you out of your fucking Snapchat? chair. I know. I don't even. <laughs> but Felix uses it. And I know he Felix uses it. it. Yeah, Felix yeah. and Sean use it. Yeah. He uh, sent me the video, but 
Yeah, and it was amazing. It was like the, you're so sprightly. It was, oh, it was awesome. When they jumped, I, I, whew, when they jumped, when they weren't there at seven, I, I, I compared it to Goodwill Hunting. It's like you know, uh, Chucky, the Ben Affleck character, keeps telling Will, you know, I come here and I pick you up every day, and we go to the Brickworks and we work. He's like, and you're too smart for this shit. One day I want to come to your place and knock on that door, and you're not going to be there, and that will make me happy. Even though it's his best friend, he, you know, he wants his friend, but he he wants his friend not to be there. I kept saying that that envelope at number seven. I just didn't want the Raptors to be there when we came knocking and when they weren't there it was a celebration baby <laughs> no but you know what it's like you know we've been deprived of the normal fun stuff that we get mm-hmm. to do for like the last year and a half and so at the end of the day though you realize it's like you know it's kind of just about like the energy you're bringing to any situation and if you're like if, if you it, like even if it's something as silly as a draft party like it doesn't matter because if, if there's like excitement and there's conversation around it and there's like good vibes that's kind of all the only thing that matters it kind of goes back to the thing i was saying about like hanging out shirtless in a hotel room with your friends it's like you know we were actually talking about this it's like it's not even about the going out part it's like oh we're going out to a restaurant or we did shots at a bar or whatever it's not about that it's just like oh the next morning's actually my favorite thing or like or the time before we actually go out anywhere and we're just hanging around and there's a game on yeah the pre-drink's the best well we made a whole trip about like we planned a whole trip about going to the draft oh like we went to the draft draft in person and it was didn't even have a pick no it was extremely (laughs) boring and and like like you think it would have been way better (laughs) but it was just all like i i wasn't even i didn't watch it at all it was just us being at the bars the whole time and i don't know like AJ, uh, our friend, was like chirping some guy. And to me, that was the show. Him, him and this guy oh, we going went to back Bri- and forth. Yeah. That was the best. We went to Brooklyn for our friend AJ's uh, bachelor party. And we and he, we got into the NBA draft. That Another shout out to the nut. And AJ ran into one of the Nets players, like a bench player, and got into like a, like they started <laughs> chirping each other in the fucking concourse. It's yeah, like AJ yeah. talking to some 6'9 guy going back and forth. We're like, oh my God. Yeah, it's so good. Were you going to say something, Shane? Sorry. I was just going to make a joke about, thank God we held AJ back for that guy's sake, but I don't need to make that joke. (laughs) Six foot nine, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, AJ would have got crushed. Um, All right. Well, yeah, let's, uh, do you guys want to jump to the, uh, the Shane surprise then? Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. A hundred percent. Let me just pull this up here. Okay. I'm ready for my intro. (laughs) Welcome to the Shane surprise. uh, Also formerly known as the dessert. Can't wait. Okay. So. I'm double vaxxed, guys, or I'm about to be double vaxxed. Mm-hmm. And I, I see yeah. Max going to cottages and he's in Vancouver. <laughs> he's not social distancing. He's pretty much an anti-masker, pro-vaxxer. <laughs> We've heard that story. So I, I thought I would do a pitch. Uh, to you guys. So I created a pitch and feel free to say yes or no. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've got a backup plan if you do say no. But okay. Okay. So imagine a world with no wives, women or children. <laughs> you should have got like a, like, like a, a, a trailer voice guy to read this and you should have played it for like Martin Yap. I know. Uh, I, I just didn't have enough time to plan this. But okay. <laughs> just beers, bros and boats. That's right, guys. I'm talking about a two day getaway that starts with a lightning fast three and a half hour drive to Eagle Lake. And mm. ends with that refresh feeling that can only be achieved after you record a podcast on a boat. Ooh. Whoa. To reiterate the plan, we record a pod on a boat at the cottage that my family, yeah, they're my family now. They own it. I own it in a way. 
Uh, so <laughs> uh, here's the drive. Okay, so we drive to the cottage together. But here's the thing. None of us actually man the wheel. That's Ooh. right. So my father-in-law, John, drives us to the cottage. He has this beautiful <laughs> cherry red Tahoe. Plenty of room. Max, you hate driving. You hate traffic. You sleep in the back. Oh, Mike and I were just listening to Howard Stern interviews on Sirius Radio <laughs> because like, you know, sleep is the ultimate teleportation device. So, Max, you won't even feel that drive. It'll be like you just wake up. Amazing. We arrive at the cottage. Yep. Max has his coffee on. There's a top deck in complete <laughs> solitude. No one talks to you. The deck overlooks the lake. The only noise to be heard will be that of birds and potentially squirrels and a grouse tiptoeing through the woods nearby. Because there is, wow. so it'll be very serene and peaceful. Mike will watch basketball highlights on the 42-inch plasma screen that is located in the spacious Woo! living room. Okay, mm. afternoon. We're ready to kind of start our day in the afternoon. We start a fire and cracker first Molson and reflect on the past year of our lives. The silence that Max enjoyed in the morning will be replaced by laughter and stories. So it's, it's us just hanging out, talking about things, ca- catching up, you know, off. Are we recording or is this off the air? This is off air. The, we haven't gotten to the first day is just getting into the easing, the cot, our, way into easing it, right? our way in. And everyone wants to know, what are we going to eat? Right. We're at a cottage. We don't want to be cooking. Father-in-law John will be there and he's a grill master and he will do anything for the bros. He loves he loves Max. He loves Mike. So he's got that covered. Who will drive the boat? We don't have our boating license. Again, father-in-law, John, he's the ultimate boat master. He'll do anything for the bros. Uh, Okay, so what do you say? That's the pitch. On day two is when we'll actually record the pod on the boat. Okay, a couple questions. That sounds amazing. Um, First of all, I want to make it clear. I like the road trips. It's not that I dislike... um, Road trips. It's just going to the cottage through GTA traffic is the mm-hmm. thing that upsets me. First of all, where is the cottage exactly? So on Eagle Lake. Me. Where is that? It's in you South River. It South River. Where's South River? It's a nice place, Max. It's like he's a he's cottage said, area. These areas so, all look identical. What does it matter? The no, routing. Wanna, he's concerned about the routing. I told yeah. you. Yeah. I three said hours, a three and a half hour lightning fast drive where you're asleep in, <laughs> in the car. <laughs> okay. What day are we going on? I don't know. Because here's here's the thing that's actually important to me is if if it's going to be like hey we're going to leave Friday at two not in don't care we're not doing it okay if we go Wednesday at eleven a.m. Wednesday to you know we're back on Friday we're going against traffic I'm absolutely in I I would just say okay listen I'm in no matter what but I would <laughs> like to have some control over the the departure time okay that's all I'm saying I'm going to bring in a closer because I think here. I'd actually like I'm, to participate in the drive I'm bringing in my closer right now okay whoa. Oh! <laughs> Because I, I thought there'd be some pushback from Max. Here. So this man has so- a little bit of hesitation from Max. Okay, this is good. Over 35 years of sales experience is coming in here right now. If he if he can actually, <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. Hi guys. Hi. Hey, John. John. Can you go on video so we? Can yeah, see we don't you? see. We just see your name and I'm tr- I'm trying to. Okay. Okay. All right. Oh, oh that guy looks so it's, relaxed. It's been oh, too long, God. John. It's great to see uh, your face, man. Great to see you guys too, rather than just listening to you in my car once a week. There you go. But, I, but I've got a sell job. Uh, first, I'm going to start with Max. Okay. Ma- hey, yeah. Max, imagine a world where you have two full days of serenity and bliss in the company of your own friends, and most importantly, at your own pace. Now, picture this, if you will. 
You wake up at oh, your leisure, wow. come out to your private balcony <laughs> on the second floor. Overlooking, wow. Oh, my goodness. Over, wow. Overlooking the lake. We're going to have a coffee maker and a oh. Globe and Mail sitting for you right there as oh, well. Jesus, oh, Jesus. That's so all right. good. Okay, hang on. Uh, let me, while I'm looking at the lake here, let me just think of some other things. Yeah, like picture this. So you won't be on a schedule. You'll be at your own pace. Do whatever the heck you want. And then when you're ready to come down and join your buddies, there's a whole host mm. of things that we could do together. Um, oh. We've got a couple of boats, as you saw. We could take those out for a cruise, maybe jump in the water, have a great playlist and a few tasty beverages. Oh, uh, we wow. could, you know, 10 minutes away, there's a couple of basketball courts. We could play oh. some two. We could, we could play a hearty game, a two-on-two to work up uh, a, a thirst for the evening. And Shane and I will even let you guys score a few points. Jock and hoop. Really good for <laughs> Jock and hoop. I oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Better than yeah. What's yeah. the ice cream situation like? What's the ice cream situation oh, like? Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. So we, between having uh, an ample uh, supply of Kawartha dairy here in the mm. fridge, just, just up at the road at Eagle Lake Narrows Country Store, I think they've got about 30 flavors. And by the wow. way, that's, that's, that's where we're going to go for dinner. We're going to take the pontoon boat uh, about five Woo! minutes about five minutes up to the lake and we're going to get the best pizza this side of staten Island. it is amazing it's amazing yeah it's amazing pizza and they come right out to the boat they'll deliver it to oh us. my god the, the nice part of that is no mess no cleanup no cleaning no dishes oh, that's okay? incredible you you, you, you you wake up in the morning you wake up in the morning and repeat now my, okay here's my my one now, question no, okay. no, no. Let's, before you get to Mike, what okay. days can we do this on? I don't care. Whenever you want. I've, I've, all right. That's all I need to hear. So, so yeah, we can go. If we want to leave, we don't want to, I don't want to deal with any traffic. So if we left Hamilton uh, 11 a.m. on a Tuesday, I don't have a real you, job. Keep in mind. You, is that possible? You'll be here by 2.20 p.m. Okay. Great. <laughs> great. Love it. Like there's just, there's just no traffic at all. And uh, okay. So it sounds like you're already sold. I'm in. Mike, I'm in. Mike. Now, mm. yeah, Mike, this is mm. this is the sell job for you. Yeah, I have boats and beer. <laughs> End of story. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, that that's what 35 years of sales experience. Will <laughs> that's it. That's all. That is our episode. Uh, that was a lot at the end. Wow, I think we just committed to two days at a cottage. Uh, I'm gonna have to tell Danica. We'll see how that goes. I think she's been listening to record the pod, so we that hard of a sell. Thank you so much to Matthew Wildcat for coming on. Uh, and yeah, and, and as always with these things, you know, uh, let's all educate ourselves as much as we can as we sort of like grow and learn. And as Matthew stated, aim toward a shared future. <laughs>